Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3 R. It is April Amnesty, so if you haven't subscribed to Triple R, get online and do it. It's rrr.org.au. We'd very much uh, love your support there, if you don't mind. Now, we have a big show coming up today. We're talking about some pretty serious stuff with regards to the environment later in the show. We're going to be talking about some COVID stuff shortly with a guest. But first up in the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Hang on. Let me just turn your microphone on. See, ah. I'm asleep the wheel today. Let's try again. Good morning, Dr. Ray. Why, good morning, Dr. Shane. <laughs> and happy Easter. <laughs> happy Easter to you too. We've got Lyndon on the line. I've turned your microphone on. You're good to go. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you over there? Uh, not bad. We're doing we're doing well. You know, it's um you know, things are slowly returning to normal, aren't there? There's people out on the roads. Vaccines are being delivered, you know, albeit a tad slowly, but they're going out there and uh and they're they're safe as far as we can tell. So that's that's all good news. But let's jump into some uh, big news. Do you want to go first, Lyndon? Things you're you're on yeah, the you're on yeah, the little video monitor. Yes, I'm I'm sitting here. I'm not in the studio today, unfortunately, but I did read a paper this week that really um, warmed my heart. You say we have we've got a bit of a serious show later today, but I read I came across a study this week that really made me think about the dreams of scientists. I don't know about you, Dr. Shane, when you started in science, what was your goal? What was your big picture thing that you wanted to discover? It, you yeah, remember? Yeah, it, it, it involved a DeLorean and 88 miles per hour. <laughs> sadly, <laughs> sadly, didn't go that way. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me that you wanted to discover a star. Oh, no. Nah. You know, you know it, it's interesting. I think um, you just want to be part of it. Like I remember because I started in astro- astrophysics, as you know, and for me, I just wanted to be part of it. There was so many amazing things starting to happen and there was this explosion of science, especially in, in you know, telescope technologies and stuff. You just wanted to be part of it, you know, see what you could contribute. Oh, that's very wholesome. I was thinking, you know, people start out in science and they want to maybe discover something or be a part of something big. Uh, figure out how an animal works, maybe discover a new cloud or something. But this paper I read this week from a team of researchers at Monash University may have fulfilled their baby scientist dreams by discovering a new law of nature. Oh, that's now, a big one. I don't mean I, I don't mean like the law of gravity, but I'm talking about a, a beautiful, simple mathematical equation that can help understand a large part of of what goes on in nature. So we know about, say, like the golden ratio or that kind of Fibonacci sequence pattern that exists Mm. in lots of things in nature, shells and plants and that kind of stuff. This law, well, it's not technically a law yet. Future research has to figure it out. But this this, uh, equation that these researchers have found is a really beautiful method to explain how pointy things grow in nature. All right. So the lead author of this study, which was published in Biomedical Biomedical Something Biology, BMC Biology, Biomed Central. That's the paper. That's the journal. Anyway, Alistair Evans is the lead author. We've had him on the show before. He works at Monash, but he also has an honorary position at Melbourne Museum. So he's got access to lots of pointy things, lots of teeth, lots of skeletons, lots of dinosaur horns. 
And he and his team have modelled a lot of these using 3D modelling and and um, looked at them over a long period of time. And they've discovered that if you take the log of the width of the pointy thing and the height, those two things, that the logarithm of those two things pretty much makes a linear relationship. It's a straight line. The paper that I was reading through, it's just straight line after straight line after straight line. It's a power law, a power relationship. And depending on the width of the tooth or the width of the horn, uh, it determines how high the tooth is going to grow and all these different things. It's it doesn't matter whether the tooths are sort of curved or whether they're kind of more concave. They all, they all kind of follow this law. And it's not just teeth as well. It's also horns, but um, beaks as well of birds and hooves and claws, uh, spider fangs, and even thorns on plants also follow this power relationship, this um, this power cascade they've just they've described it as because it describes how the relationship kind of cascades down as the the tooth or the pointy thing grows Hmm. which you know to me is just amazing and it's amazing because it's just gloriously elegant but it's also helping will help us now understand a bit about evolution how things have evolved and how they might evolve in the future if we know that most of the pointy things in nature follow this relationship Uh, and it also you know to me just seems like an incredible thing I'm thinking about all these scientists over at Monash this weekend eating their Easter eggs, thinking, oh, wow, look at that. We help to contribute to this this beautiful equation that really helps explain things that we see all around us all the time. It's amazing. Yeah, it's not not often you get to coin a law. There are a few of them, actually. And, in fact, I think the term originally comes from the idea of them being commandments of God back uh, in the day. So there's an Easter secret for you. Um, But not many things are called laws. You know, you have equations and this, that, and the other, but to actually be called a law of something as as different, there's few of those. So that's a that's a big get. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah a big and get. I think it, it, it's not yet. I think future research will describe that. Like you say, mm. biology is more hesitant now to say that's a law, that's a law. Yep. But, you know, <clears> the <throat> authors are saying this fills in a gap that um, Christopher Wren started looking at this in the 1700s and right. now we're able to build on his work. So it's definitely, it's taking a step forward of an area of research that's been around for a long time. Yep. Good work, Monash. We need a law. We need a few more laws coming from Australia into the science world. Why not? Thanks, Lyndon. Ray, what do you got for us? Well, Dr. Shane, I um, I've spent uh, I've probably in the last couple of years, my research has shifted more from just particle technology of my own work to trying to ask questions about how do we make it more sustainable. Uh, and one of the things I'm working on now is working with a group at Monash, and we're trying to figure out ways to do encapsulation without microplastics. So normally, when I'm kind of following my fun stories, what do I look for? Stories on bees. Um, there wasn't one this week. So I went, well, where do we go about fun stories about replacing plastics? And this is uh, work at the University of Maryland and Yale University who have come up with a make, way to make a what they call a strong biodegradable recyclable ligo, ligonocellulosic bioplastic, which has a lot of bios in it. Anyway, um, what they've done, though, is, is they've actually basically used wood pulp or um, wood powder, which is a, a process residue from lumber mills. Mm-hmm. And they've been able to figure out how to take that as a feedstock and make an organic biodegradable plastic out of it. Uh, and is as the authors quote, they or I'm paraphrasing, many people have tried this type of thing, but the real challenge is to make it mechanically robust and water resistant. Uh, and they and they've done that. And and what's interesting is they've done that 
It degrades in three months in soil. It can be chopped up and recycled, which is unique because a lot of biopolymers are not recyclable as well. So um, they've actually done a really nice job in making what I think is a bioplastic, which actually could replace plastics working now. And you go, okay, well, what did they do that was so different? And it was kind of interesting what they did is, so as we know, wood's an amazing material. Wood's what we get paper from. When we get paper out of it, it's primarily made of the cellulose components in wood. Um, but the other part of wood is this kind of complex organic polymers called lignin. And lignin is the glue that holds all these cellulose fibers together. And that's why wood has this amazing strength. But when we make paper, we get rid of the lignin because it's actually quite hard to process. Well, what they did was, is they figured out a way to keep the lignin in and make this slurry. So kind of like wet sand gloopy mixture that they could then press or cast into rollers to make a polymer film. And and how they did it was that they actually used a, a technology that's maybe come out in the last 10 years commercially in using what are called deep eutectic solvents, which are a class of green solvents. And what they're notable about is they have very high boiling points. They have very low vapor pressure, so they don't emit to the environment. Um, and they're very easy to separate from water. And so they dissolve the wood pulp in this deep eutectic solvent, which is also environmentally friendly on its own, um, to be able to get the lignin to intertwine with those fibers. Then they throw water at it. It causes it all to, to drop out a solution. They can get the deep eutectic out, solvent out, and then they're left with this water slurry, which they can then form into plastics. Uh, and what's great about this is the solvent can be recovered. This can be done at scale cheaply. And there are a lot of amazing materials that we can make that take all, are very expensive when we can't scale up. And, and so there's some real potential here. In fact, the yeah. authors are so confident about it, they were thinking about, wow, you know what? We're going to need more wood. We better start talking to lumbering companies about ways to manage this, because what if we could replace a large fraction of our plastics from fossil fuels actually by something like this bioplastic? So hmm. it seemed like a pretty big step in, in the bioplastic space. Yeah, that's no, cool stuff. And it's always good when you hear about these things that have the same capabilities, but will biodegrade. Yeah. It's like, well, uh, it, it, know. And hmm. I'm sorry, the last thing, the technology, those deep eutectic solvents, a lot of Australian chemists and physicists have been doing a lot of research on that in the last 10 or 15 years. So it's it's something where that fundamental science then gets connected to a, to an application. Yeah, very cool stuff. Now, I just wanted to uh, quickly mention to you both and to everyone out there that the um, the Ingenuity Mars helicopter is, uh, it's been a slight delay. They thought the earliest it would possibly take off was April the 8th. It's now the 11th. So Sometimes they're doing better than some Qantas flights yeah, too. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Um, but uh, so this is a little helicopter that uh, the Perseverance rover had stuck to the bottom of it and has been carrying around for a while and roving around. It will very soon be dropped onto the Martian surface. So the rover has headed over to essentially a, an, what it considers an airfield, so an area where it can do this test. And this will be the the idea is to drop this little helicopter. And when I say little, it's little. It's well, it's kind of little and big in a way. So it's little in terms of its actual mass. It's about one. 1.8 kilograms in total, so pretty small bag of potatoes. Um, but its its rotor wingspan is about 1.2 meters, so it is quite wide. So imagine that's, that's you know, like as tall as me. Yeah, like Why? a little a little drone, you know, little droney thing. But the wings are just ginormous, and they're also super thin and light. Now, the reason they have to be super thin and light is because if you just take a note of, of Mars and some of its features, it has about one-third of Earth's gravity. So that's good. That's a bonus. Easier to take off. But unfortunately, it only has 1% of our atmosphere. Now, if you think to, to make a helicopter work, 
you need you need some gas there. You need something. And 1% is a really small amount. So this is why this will be such a, a huge achievement if they can make this happen. Now, there's a lot that's got to happen between now and then because they've charged the, the little thing up. They're going to drop it off, but then it's got to survive the Martian uh, night. And the Martian night can be down to minus 90 degrees Celsius. And at that temperature, if the little heaters and so forth in the unit don't operate correctly, some of its electronics can just crack under the cold. So it's pretty hostile. And, of course, on Mars, it's only about 50% of the solar power that you get at ground level that you get here on Earth. So <laughs> a little bit harder to sort of charge it up. But it will it will hopefully launch. And it's carrying something. I think I mentioned this the other week, but if people didn't hear, I'll mention it again because I think it's pretty cool. It's a small piece of fabric that is wrapped around a part of the aircraft that is off the Wright Brothers plane. That's awesome. Which is pretty cool. Um, now, for those of you historians out there, you may remember that a similar piece of fabric and actually a small chip of wood off that plane was also carried to the moon by Apollo 11 really? on the aircraft. So oh, wow. there's some, there's some cool little connectivity points here that I think are just beautiful. And this will be the first ever powered flight attempt on another planet. So, I think, you know, the Wright brothers did it, you know, over 100 years ago here on Earth, and now we're attempting it in about a week. Um, on Mars, which will be super cool. Now, it'll take probably a day to get the data back. So if you're looking for that drone footage, um, not you know, not too soon. It will happen a little bit later. We'll get it probably a day later. But hopefully um, we, we will know whether or not this thing can, can do what it's supposed to. Now, it's got about 30 days, they think. Um, that's the time window in which it has to do this job. So if they don't manage to take off within 30 days, that's it. Mission over. Its entire mission success is based on just flight. So there's no scientific okay. instruments. There's nothing else. It's just, can this little guy actually take off? And if it can, you know, that's a success. It means they can fly something on Mars, which is really cool. Keeping in mind, you know, it's <clears throat> not that long ago that we were even working out whether or not we could drive on Mars. So, yeah. you know, it, we've come a long way. I mean, it took us 20 years to figure out how to land on Mars with no atmosphere. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, yeah that's hard too. <laughs> so, anyway, we're going to jump on to the next call. Lyndon, thanks so much. Good to see you. I think we might have lost you. You too. Oh, have a wonderful go. Sunday. <clears throat> Take care. Triple R. We have on the line now our first guest for today. His name is Connor McCafferty. He is a PhD student at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Good morning, Connor. How are you going? Good morning. I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Dr. Shane. Now, it's not often that we have a, a COVID uh, researcher on the show. We usually leave that up to the doctors, although we have touched on it a couple of times because it seemed unavoidable last year. But you're working, uh, I suppose, in an area that I suspect most people have heard about now, but this issue of that sort of what's been called long COVID, yes? Yeah? So this is the, the sort of longer period illnesses that some people are getting, yeah? Yeah, so we're looking at some of the the stuff that's a bit of a step away from what people are normally thinking of, where people normally think about the, the breathing problems. We're looking at the blood clotting and the long-term and the inflammatory problems, yeah. Yeah. Now, we should be clear here because blood clotting has been in the news um, in a monstrous way over the last, uh, I guess, week or so, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about any potential link to the vaccine. We're talking about blood clotting that's occurring, and correct me if I'm wrong here, as a result of the virus itself, Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So it, it came out quite early last year that people were getting COVID-19 and then having uh, some blood clots occur later. And that's the focus of our research here, definitely. Yeah. Now, before we jump into into the blood clotting itself, give us a 
bit of an idea of some of these long COVID um, things that people are experiencing? Because I, I suspect you know, everyone's aware of, you know, there's that symptom list, which keeps getting longer, actually. But, you know, there's that symptom list where, you know, get tested if you, you have these things. But the long COVID stuff is sort of different to that symptom list, isn't it? A little bit. I think some of the, the key ones that we have been looking at, obviously, I'm a clot researcher mainly. Mm. So we've been looking at those, those clotting problems that uh, are sticking around after people get better, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, we've also been looking a little bit in some of the inflammatory problems. So some children get better from COVID and then they have this inflammatory condition, their skin breaks out, uh, similar to sort of a Kawasaki disease type thing. We're looking at that as well. But then some more common things are just difficulties breathing that don't mm. go away. Um, and these can really hang around for 12 weeks after people recover and, and even keep going. So there's a lot there we don't understand. Uh, are these conditions uh, mainly with people who have any sort of pre-existing ailments or are they in completely healthy, especially where you own healthy kids that otherwise were, you know, not suffering from any condition whatsoever? There's a bit of back and forth on that as well. And I think we don't know the full story. Uh, we have some evidence, at least with, the, with some of the clotting findings, that people who've had vascular problems before or previous strokes might be more at risk. Uh, but as you said, in these children with these inflammatory conditions, they're otherwise healthy children. So we haven't fully figured out the link just yet um, mm. to what is happening there. Mm. All right. Now, let's talk about the, the clotting. So what, what's what's going on in the body post-COVID recovery? Well, I guess recovery is probably a, a, a difficult term there because it sounds like we're not completely recovering from it. But what is happening in the body that's potentially causing this clotting? The problem is it could actually be a, a lot of things. There's a million moving parts in the clotting system anyway in a normal clotting situation. Uh, and I think because COVID really came out of nowhere, we still haven't figured out all of those little steps. We know that it's happening to platelets, which are little cells in the blood that cause clotting as well. But also we know that the actual vessels themselves appear to have long-term changes and they can cause clotting as well. At the moment, it looks like a little bit of everything that doesn't mm. appear to go away afterwards um the the problem is that it's happening after the virus is gone though and we really just don't know how it's causing this long-term problem and we really need to figure out how to stop that from happening now, now let's just let's just pause for a moment and talk about the, the what clotting is there for i mean clotting is there so that if we get cut or we have damage anywhere in our body our body seals that up essentially so we don't bleed to death right i mean that's the that's the goal of that system, yeah? Yeah, it's normally a good thing, actually. You know, if you've sort of nick yourself shaving or mm. have an accident in the kitchen, it's there to just plug up the wound until you can heal it, uh, but most importantly, to go away when it doesn't need to be there anymore. So clinically, we run into problems when a clot pops up that didn't need to be there and uh, won't go away when it should. Yeah. Now, I assume a lot of people are probably um, aware of the clotting aspects in the brain and so forth, but these these clot problems can happen anywhere in the body, can't they? I mean, all, all of our major organs are susceptible, I assume, to, to these problems. Yeah, anywhere. So what really happens in a clot is it's basically just a, a little firm piece in the blood that can block the circulation from getting there. So any organ, any tissue, it can really happen anywhere. Yeah. Now, of course, my understanding is there are medications like um, I think warfarin's one. There's a range of medications that people take in order to reduce the chance of clotting. But I'm guessing they also have not necessarily the best uh, side effects as, as well, and they have to be carefully monitored, especially in kids, I assume. It's, uh, it really depends on what the drug is and what it's being taken for. Like I said, uh, clotting can happen a million different ways. So a lot of the drugs can be targeted to where exactly they need to be in that system. But monitoring is really important. When we're dealing with blood, we've got to keep it 
to stop it from clotting and then to stop it from bleeding. So it's a really delicate balance. Um, so we really have to monitor those drugs to make sure we're not tipping the scales towards mm. the other direction. Do, do you have a feel for, in a given person, how much of this is occurring? Because I, I realise that when patients come in and they have something quite wrong, you know, when some something's going wrong with an organ in their body because of this clotting problem, that um, that would be very, you know, very obvious that or you'd be able to detect that. But have you done any sort of studies on people who, you know, just random people who have had the virus to see whether or not they're, cl- they're clotting factors? I'm just chucking terms out here and making them up. Um, are there, there elements of that to say, okay, it's more likely that people are, are getting this as a result of the virus? Yeah, and it, we've sort of had to look at that because being in COVID, we haven't had many severe COVID cases, mm. uh, thankfully. We're very lucky for that. Um, so a lot of our, well, some of our early work really was with people who were mild or asymptomatic with COVID. And we did see some really minor changes in those you know, clotting factors, like you said. So the system was active. They probably weren't severe enough for it to have actually been a problem. And no one might have ever noticed if we didn't go looking for it. But they were having an actual response that a, a normal typical person in the community wouldn't have. Yeah. Now, you've been working on particular models around how this works. I mean, tell, tell us about that and what, what will the, the models give us? So, we were really lucky as well. I think COVID allowed us to make some really good uh, collaborations with people we might not have spoken to otherwise. But we've, in the lab, been able to basically just grow some of these vessel cells like we have in our, in our bodies and infect them with the virus. Our colleagues at the Doherty Institute have actually isolated the virus, so we can just infect those cells, put some um, plasma, which sort of mimics the blood in the body anyway, on top of those and just see, did those cells being infected cause any blood to clot on its own? And we can just look at that under the microscope to some real basic science to get some answers. And did you see that? Like when you when you did that, did you see them clotting up or was it a rare occurrence? What did it look like? We did we did see clotting up uh, happening and, and more importantly, we did see clotting up happening more so in some people who had... Um, previous uh, sort of vascular vascular path problems or vascular diseases. So we saw a little bit of a gradient there, but we're still um, just sort of going through all the details and seeing if we can add some drugs into the mix to, to really get an understanding of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure about this, but presumably there's a scenario there where in our body those problems would be addressed by other parts of our system. And so it's not like every time someone gets the virus, it immediately starts causing clotting. In most people, I assume that would just be dealt with by our our body's systems, whereas in the dish, it's a bit different, yeah? Yeah, there's not not a lot going on in the dish to really counteract it. Um, Yeah, our bodies do have really good systems at breaking down clots, which is why we don't notice any problems when we do, you know, have a a nick shaving or something like that. The body's really good at handling them. So we are looking at very artificial environments, but they let us get a bit more understanding on what the virus is actually doing. Yeah, that's good. I just didn't want to scare anyone listening, you know, make sure that they are aware that, you know, our systems are pretty good at this. Uh, Connor, I was curious, and Dr. Shane may have to repeat my question because you might not hear me across the room through the iPad, but that's technology. (laughs) Um, Are there other viruses that have long-term effects like this that we might know of? Or are there any other viruses that cause long-term clotting effects or have been observed? Maybe not the same way, but the idea of getting a virus and then it having to impact for over a longer time. I mean, does flu do this or any of the Ross River? I mean, are there any other things that we might come into contact with pretty commonly that would could have a longer-term impact? Uh, yeah, so that's a really great question. The big thing we found when we were looking and we started these experiments is that no one has really looked before. Uh, so there's every chance that this isn't quite common in the virus world and that's why it's never popped up as an issue before. 
there is some evidence of other infections playing a role uh, with coagulation um, and this blood clotting problem, like staph infections can sometimes trigger it, you know, that's bacteria. Um, but as for influenza or other viral infections, we just don't know. No one's really looked, uh, which probably leads us to think it's not really having a clinical impact if people aren't getting the flu and turning up to a hospital with blood clots a week later. Yeah. Well, Connor, look, thanks for chatting to us today. And I think it's it's interesting that um, we're doing some of this work here in Melbourne as well. Um, I mean, we haven't had as many cases, as you say, so it's lucky we've got the Doherty Institute just down the road from you guys to be able to give you small um, pieces of the virus. But um, yeah. these long COVID, uh, you know, things, I over colleague in in the uk who's been suffering from many of those ailments post having having the virus and so forth and there seems to be many many um outcomes and we're very lucky here that we we have a you know essentially almost no one with with covid because some of those longer term scenarios are, are you know a bit concerning but um good good to hear you guys are, are looking into it and hopefully um we'll come up with some good solutions should those issues arise for people so thanks so much for chatting to us perfect thanks guys thanks for having me on Folks, that was uh, Connor McCafferty. He's doing a PhD at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute uh, looking into some of the coagulation problems associated with COVID-19. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We have on the line now Ewan Ritchie, Professor Ewan Ritchie, who is, of course, a member of our team. Uh, he's from Deakin University. And also we have Dana Bergstrom, who is from the University of Wollongong and also the Principal Research Scientist at the Australian Antarctic Division. Good morning, Dana. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for coming on and good morning, Ewan. Good to chat to you again. G'day. All righty. Now, we have a fair bit of time to go through what is essentially, you know, I suspect one of the most important documents to come out in quite a while with regards to our fair country and many of the things going on. Dana, do you want to just sort of lead us in with, a, as sort of the principal author there, um, this sort of what this, what this paper was about and how long it took you to put it together? Okay. The, the paper is about um, combating ecosystem collapse and What we did was we looked at uh, a handful of examples, um, 20 in all, from the tropics of Australia all the way down to Antarctica, and we were looking to see whether ecosystems had fallen over. The story originated on Macquarie Island, which is a long way away from uh, uh, Australia, Mm. and I was there in 2008 and I'd been studying the ecosystem for a long time and it was around Christmas time and I noticed that the what's called the keystone species, the main species in what's called the alpine areas or the tundra of Macquarie Island, just didn't wake up after winter. Mm. They go from a brown cushion to a bright green, uh, sort of derwent green colour um, around Christmas time and I was coming back to the station and I realised that a lot, lots of them hadn't actually gone back to green. They hadn't come out of winter. And then when I looked around, I realised some were brown and then some were actually grey and they had, had fallen over, they had died. Right. And so that started a five-year journey to understand how such an important plant could go from healthy to critically endangered in, in three years. Yeah. And a colleague, Justine Shaw from the University of Queensland, and I said, well, is it happening on Macquarie Island? Is it happening anywhere else? And with the help of the Australian Academy of Sciences, we ran a conference on ecosystem collapse and 
ecosystem surprises. And to our surprise, there were lots of them. Um, so we had 80 people turn up to the Shine Dome in Canberra and these stories started to emerge. And in a workshop that we had after the conference, we started to, to put the story together. But it took another three years to actually piece it all together. Um, and there were 38 authors on this work and it was a pretty pretty substantial look at just a handful of examples. So mm. we know that there are ecosystems falling over in other parts of Australia, but we were just looking at some key examples. Yeah. So that's where it originated, but it took us a long three years to put these stories together because when people started to look at ecosystem change, they didn't set up, oh, let's see if things are going to collapse in, the, you know, in 20 years' time. Yep. And so the story is put together by data and also narrative um, using multiple lines of evidence for each of the 19 examples. We had 20 in first, but 19 met our, um, our criteria for collapsing, which means they go from healthy to a changed state, which doesn't look like they're going to recover. Yeah. Now, one of the things I'm curious about, because when you talk about Macquarie Island, and I can imagine a few other areas where things are geographically sort of landlocked in some cases, um, you know, disconnected from from other areas in in other parts of the of Australia because of a variety of conditions. How many of these ecosystems um, were like that, and how many of them were across a much broader range of of the continent? Was it mainly focused on ones where, you know, as as the climate's shifting, these things just can't move and they're no longer stable where they're located? Um, we have a few small examples. Macquarie Island is one of them. The moss beds in Antarctica, mm -hmm. um, in East Antarctica, um, near Casey and Davis, um, and the sort of snowbank vegetation in the alpine zones. But we also include some very extensive ecosystems. So the northern savannas, and the central arid zones. So they yep. um, together probably cover, what, two-thirds of the continent. So yeah. it's an ecosystem is an, a, a construct that means offset size. So the things that we get from, you know, sort of just on the other side of the Great Divide all the way across to Western Australia sort of, uh, sort of all arid zones. So they, they are all the same sort of mm. linked ecosystems. They're components in them such as mulga. Um, but we're calling that one type of ecosystem. So yeah. they go from small to very, very large. Um, yeah. We also have some Gondwanan elements in there, so the tropical rainforests of northern Queensland and the uh, Gondwanan relics that we find in southwest Tasmania of the pencil pines. Yeah, interesting. Now, Ewan, I might switch to you for a second because one of the things that uh, is important to note here is, and, and in a sense... I'm not sure we should worry about the uh, sort of details of this, but in order for something to, for an ecosystem to sort of classify this collapsing, what, at what point do we do that? Like how far gone does it have to be? Yeah, that's a great question, Shane. And it is a tricky thing to determine exactly when an ecosystem has collapsed. But in this paper, essentially our definition of a collapse is where an ecosystem had changed in such a substantial way that it's, it's very unrecognisable from its original state. And just as importantly, it's very unlikely uh, to recover at all. So I think, you know, an example you could think of a, you know, the Barrier Reef would be a really good example. Mm. So where we've seen those really severe bleaching events where coral has died 
And subsequently, it's actually converted to an algal-type situation where you've got lots of algae growing and basically no coral at all. And associated with that, the fish communities and everything else changes as well because the coral architecture, if you like, the structure, that all disappears because the coral is all dead and it becomes rubble. And then it converts to sort of algal turf and, and things like that. So that's probably a good example where, you know, the system has changed and because of things like, you know, climate change and the increasing temperature of the ocean, ocean acidification, you know, runoff from agriculture and so forth, those threats that cause that collapse in the first place continue and therefore it's very unlikely that that system is going to be able to recover. So that's essentially our, our definition of a collapse. And, you know, a collapse can sort of occur gradually. It can occur really abruptly. Um, you know, ecosystems can sort of blip in and blip out. Um, but, yeah, once that system has basically, you know, changed in a, such a substantial way that it's very different to its original state and it's not going to recover. Yeah, that's mm. what we mean by collapse. And one one thing, I, I suppose we, we're we all fairly aware of this, but, you know, in all of these systems, there's an interconnectivity between the various life forms and so forth within them. How many of these systems, though, um, have, I suppose, some, I'm not even sure what you call them, but one or two, so they could be plants, they could be animals, whatever, that if they go, the whole system collapses? Because I can imagine there's some systems where there's sort of some redundancy, but are you seeing scenarios where, you know, there's a lot of these key key sort of stakeholders within that system, and if you take those out, then the whole thing falls apart? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, again, Macquarie Island is an example. Um, and I, I should say that when we say collapse, they're components of the full range. So we're not seeing the full range of ecosystems collapsing, but we're seeing... Um, elements or spaces in the ecosystems collapsing. So in terms of losing the keystone or the really main function, um, Macquarie Island, we're losing the cushion plants, and when we lose the cushion plants, we end up having two states, either just bare ground because the winds mm-hmm. have blown away the cushion or we get grasses coming in and going, oh, look at this lovely dead cushion, which is now lovely um, sort of compost, and we'll grow on top of it. Um, so that's a two-state. So you're losing your keystone there. The um, the forests in in Victoria, both the mountain ash and the alpine ash, losing those elements and the snow gums as well. They're really important structural elements of the ecosystems, and they are they are going. Um, and what we looked at were the number of pressures and the types of pressures, and we divided the pressures on these ecosystems into two types. So we had global climate change pressures and regional human impacts. So in the case of forests, you could have, uh, and the most common uh, global impact was increased temperature or changes in in rainfall, Um, and that was a a long-term, we call it press, a chronic press, and then we also had short-term events, um, which we call a pulse, and so a pulse would be fire or or storms, and so they're the other two common events. so short-term pressures. And so in terms of a regional pressure, that could be logging or clearing mm-hmm. um, or um, changes in the, the, the temperature or the fire frequency. Yeah. And, and uh, I suppose, Dana, is your expectation, you, you mentioned that you, you looked at um, 19, I, th- I think you said, of, of these various scenarios, but um, how, how many do you expect to be in this state? If, if you were to extend that to, you know, 100 or 200 across Australia, how many of the ecosystems do you expect to be in this current state 
And can the 19 be extrapolated that way or is it too small a sample set? I'm not sure about extrapolating, but certainly I've had lots of people write to me saying, well, I'm seeing them, this is my backyard. I'm seeing it in, um, you know, in certain areas that they know. So I think once we start to drill down, we'll see other grasslands, we'll see other forests, um, woodlands and things like that. We'll have elements of collapse um, mm. in them as well. So I suspect it's going to be a lot more widespread. And the focus here is on ecosystems, but we also know that you know, a lot of our colleagues fo focus on threatened species. And so they too, um, we know, uh, um, we have the highest rates of mammal extinction in the country, you know, one of the sort of leading countries in the world. Um, and so elements are dropping out as, as well. Um, the bogong moths, for example, um, which feed pygmy possums. So things are yep. very, very connected. Yeah. Yeah. And Sorry, you and go just ahead. To quickly, just to quickly add to your, I guess, the, those comments in that question, Shane, is although we did only look at 20 ecosystems in total, they do span, you know, pretty much every major biome and environment you can imagine from the tropics right down to Antarctica. So they are very representative of the types of environments and ecosystems across the whole continent of Australia. So it is highly likely that many other ecosystems will be facing serious mm. challenges. Mm. And Ewan, just, just going on from that, um, when we talk about something like us having the, you know, pretty much the highest um, rate of mammal extinctions in, in the world, um, wh what does that mean? Does that mean we're losing 5% of our mammals a year, 15%? You, you know, what is that in terms of actual, actual numbers? How bad is that? Yeah, well, in terms of actual numbers, we, we think we've had at least 34 extinctions since European colonisation, mm -hmm. which is orders of magnitude higher than any other country on Earth over yep. that same time period. Um, it's also worth remembering that we also have a really high number of threatened mammals. And I think the point that you raised before about um, keystone species is another really important one in relation to mammals, because many of the mammals that have become extinct or have suffered dramatic declines and are now only found in a really small part of Australia are digging mammals. So things like bilbies and bandicoots and betongs and so forth. And they spend a lot of their time hopping around or running around digging in the soil. And we now know that that's really important for soil fertility, for seedling germination, and it profoundly changes those soils and their ability to support vegetation, which, you know, as, as Dana was, you know, Dana was talking before as well, is that, you know, we focus on ecosystems and the structure of the ecosystems. And if we lose species that maintain that, of course, like you say, there's knock-on effects right mm. throughout the system. So, you know, um, we're still losing mammal species. So, you know, the most recent extinctions include the Christmas Island pipistrelle, which is a bat um, species, a micro bat, and, of course, the bramble K. melamies, which is thought to be the first mammal um, that has become extinct um, due to climate change, which had its island inundated by water. So, mm -hmm. and that's only in, in the space of the last decade or so where those extinctions occurred. So, it's not just an historical um, tragedy and legacy of our extinctions. The extinctions are still occurring and, yeah. and with a regularity that's really disturbing. Yeah. Now, we're going to take a break in a moment for uh, some important station announcements, but I should say one of the rare things about this paper, which I I'm really was very happy to see, was not only does it give us what we've had so far, which is this incredibly disturbing story of what's going on, but also it tackled exactly what to do about it. So in just a few minutes, if you two are both happy to hang around, we'll pivot across to um, – God, you can't use that word pivot anymore, can you? I think it's really banned. <laughs> we will uh, we'll change topic and we'll start talking about what we 
actually need to do to address this. Yeah, you guys happy to stick around? Absolutely. Absolutely. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. We are partway through a very important discussion with you and Richie and Dana Bergstrom about this uh, new paper that has come out. Uh, five years of work, actually, just looking at a lot of the threatened species that uh, we are having problems with at the moment in Australia and nearby. Uh, now, Ewan, um, one of the things that's unusual about this paper, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not as common to see a list of well-thought-out solutions when these papers come out about um, these problems, is it? Yeah, look, that's that's something that we're all agreed upon and really passionate about is that, you know, as unfortunately, there's a lot of doom and gloom stories out there about the environment. Mm. And we didn't want to be another group of people saying it's all terrible. We also did want to sort of document the problems, but also the solutions. And that 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 is a really key part of this paper is that it's not too late. So things are really dire and, and you know, we really do need to act today and, and not delay any further. But there are absolutely things we can do. And so one of the things that this paper addresses, and I think it's arguably almost, you know, it's equally important to identifying the problems, is this approach called the three A's, which I think I'll let Dana talk about. Um, But, yeah, it's really about proactive solutions. Yeah. Dana, tell tell us about the three A's. What do we do? The three A's is something that... um Anyone can do. So it's a message for um, high-level government and NGOs, but it's also a message for someone who has their local reserve that they consider to be really important and need protecting. So it's a really simple uh, mnemonic. Um, The first one is awareness. So uh, And the second A is anticipation. And the third one is action. But awareness of what's important to you or what the ecosystem value is. Um, so if we take the example of the uh, Gondwanan uh, ancient forests in uh, in, Tas- in Tasmania, in the World Heritage Area, they were the, the ancient pines. Um, so they were more important um, because they're ancient and they've never had fire compared to, say, button grass, which can recover from fire. So awareness of what's important. The second one is anticipation of what's coming down the line and um, I'll test you in a second, Shane, and ask you about your favourite spot, and I'm sure you'll be able to identify what those um, pressures are in yep. somewhere that's special for you. And then the last one is action, and you can either manage the, the, the pressure, such as putting in a fire break and avoiding a fire, um, and then you go around the circle again, preparing for future change, or if you have some impact, we have a number of choices. The first one, it might be just to leave alone and let things recover, Mm. The second one I might to handle is to get some some help, um, help restore a, an ecosystem that's had some impact from a pressure. So one of the examples that was really quite surprising was in the Gulf of Carpentaria, um, about a million mango trees just died in a very short period of time. It was a really weird combination of, of pressures. First, they were under drought. Uh, secondly, there was a high pressure system, which is part of um, uh, there's an ENSO system which sort of pushed the, the sea away. We don't think of uh, high-pressure systems putting pressure and moving moving oceans, but they can. And so what that meant was the mangroves were lacking water for a, mm. um, a couple of weeks and they all just fell over. Um, also, there'd been uh, water being extracted um, for agriculture close by, so there was no water coming down through the through the creeks because the... Uh, the um, subsurface water had been removed. Um, the, the indigenous uh, 
serpent is something really important to to remember is that water is on the surface and under the underground. Mm. Yep. And so they fell over, but they're not recovering very well because the tides keep coming in and the, the, the trees have fallen over and these logs keep coming in with the tides and knocking over the seedlings. And so one of the things you could help restore that would be to have some rangers go in and help pull out some of those dead logs to allow some areas to recover from seedlings. So that's a restore. Yep. And then if you can't um, recover or restore, then it gets a little bit more expensive and you have renovate. And this is uh, an idea that's come out of uh, CSIRO. Um, uh, Susan Prover, our colleague, is a champion of this. It's where you change an element inside a forest. So this is something really really different is to change, to actually actively change something in an ecosystem. And the example we give is the uh, uh, alpine ash where the fire frequency is now too um, too short to allow trees to get to maturity and shed seed. And so they're getting killed mm-hmm. by fire and the seedlings aren't there because the seeds aren't coming from mature trees. And using some hybridisation techniques, people are now reseeding with plants that can survive a, a shorter fire frequency. And then the last one is adapt, and that's really, really expensive. Um, but that's where you now start to um, think about building novel ecosystems if the conditions have changed so much that what was there no longer survives. Yeah. Um, and th- if we don't act, yep. um, then we risk, there's a high chance of risk and loss either for ecosystem um, services, the things that ecosystems provide us, such as pollinators, mm. um, loss of values. Um, and you know, impact industry. For yeah, yeah. Oh, look, it's a, it's a huge it's a huge problem. You and in terms of the um, just the I suppose impact of this paper. I mean, you know, these things end up doing quite well in the scientific community. But how did this play out in the sort of general media and and sort of more broader? Did it get this sort of did it land in the way that you were hoping? Yeah, look, it has. It's it's received a huge amount of um, media attention in, in a whole range of different media outlets. Um, so that's that's really encouraging. And we have communicated, you know, the importance of this work with decision makers um, so that they're aware of the fact that, you know, there are these challenges of which, you know, many of them, of course, they, they know about already. But again, just to repeat, you know, that there's solutions at hand. And as, you know, as Dana was saying, that you know, the sooner we intervene, the cheaper that's going to be. And, of course, if we conserve what we have, we, we know the benefits. And, of course, a really good example is, you know, Melbourne's water catchment and protecting our forests that provide water for 5 million people, right? And we mm. know that if we have old, older, more intact forests, they actually conserve water better than a forest that's being cut down is rapidly growing, which actually sucks up lots of the water. So, you know, um, maintaining our ecosystems, you know, has a whole range of benefits, um, both for ourselves, you know, but of course for um, nature as a whole. So, yeah, look, it has it has received a huge amount of t- attention, um, you know, both within Australia and also overseas. And I think, again, you know, other other countries are sort of looking at what's happening in Australia and thinking, well, you know, similar things are happening of course, in, in their own countries, um, and they face similar challenges. So it does, in many respects, also provide a bit of a framework, if you like, or a roadmap where they can examine these issues in their own countries and also uh, ideally come up with solutions as well. So we really hope this paper will be a positive um, contribution overall rather than, again, just sort of another doom and gloom story because, it, yeah, it's it's actively sort of um, 
basically trying to you know motivate for the fact that it isn't too late. Um, and again, the sooner we intervene and the um, sooner we put these actions into place, the better off we'll all be. Yep. And now just just before we go, uh, Ewan, is there a location where people can readily access this? I know these things are often written for scientific audiences, but this one sounds like it's got some pretty solid readable solutions in there. Is Where, where can people get to it? Yeah, the, the two best places to go, um, we did have a conversation article that summarises the key points about mm-hmm. the research paper itself, and that's a nice um, readily uh, accessible and understandable summary. Um, but also you can actually go to the journal directly itself, which is in Global Change Biology. So if you type yep. in ecosystem collapse and global change biology and it's open access, so it's freely available to anybody, um, you'll find it there as well. All right. Thanks, Ewan. Thanks, Dana. And, and congratulations on doing this extraordinarily large piece of work. And I have no idea, Dana, how you wrangled so many authors together <laughs> into into working on a single paper. It's, you know, I've seen the particle physicists do this, but that's that's a, a rare scenario. So well, well done on that work. And thanks for chatting to us today. Uh, thanks very much, Shane. I now think I have the the title of cat herder. Uh, one last <laughs> point is, of course, there's lots of work happening already in the country and lots of investment, yep. um, but we're just saying there's more that people can do. Yep, excellent. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks for being on Einstein thanks, Diego today. And good luck thanks, with the ongoing work. All right, folks, uh, that was um, that was Ewan Ritchie, who is a, a member of our team here, and Dana Bergstrom from the University of Wollongong, who is also the principal research scientist at the Australian Antarctic Division. We are going to have to hand over in a moment to the team from Eat It, uh, who, uh, well, I'm not sure what's going on over there today. They could be doing a, you know, it's Easter. It's got to be something big. Ooh, it's food. You know, food. I'm sure Cam is, is lined something is up special. Ch- chocolate eggs, roasted bunnies. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> anyway, folks, uh, whatever you're doing today, uh, whatever your particular needs, uh, if you're stuck in the lab, sorry to hear that. Hope we've entertained you for a short period. Um, if you are out and about with the kids or family or whatever, stay safe. And we will chat to you with more science again next week. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Thanks, Dr. Ray. Pleasure Good to Dr. have you Shane. in the studio. Um, We'll see you again next week, folks. Have a good weekend. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.